What about the passage that we read? Well, much like the passages that we've studied over the last couple of weeks with Andy and Dan, this is a prayer. Paul seems to like to begin his letters with prayers. They give him the chance to coach his readers a little bit in their own praying. Uh, And they also give him a chance to reflect on and then tell his readers the things about them which encourage him. And this prayer is full of good things to say, isn't it? Here in the space of just five verses, he mentions God's compassion. He mentions comfort nine times. He talks about closeness to Christ. He talks about the certainty of our hope. And I hope we're all saying yes, yes, yes. But then maybe, uh, what was that again? Um, Because there's such a torrent of information here, the sentences seem to just kind of go around and around. It's hard to keep track of Paul's main idea, or at least I find it hard to work out whether he even has a main idea. So part of our goal here this morning is going to be to try and straighten that out. We're going to get out our Pauline enthusiasm iron and we're going to try and flatten out the logic of this passage so that we can see where he's going before we hopefully then let it kind of spring back into shape and see what it's uh, for. But if that was all we aim to do here, Paul, I think, would be disappointed. You see, Paul didn't write this just for our information, just to give us a kind of National Geographic blast of uh, historical data about his relationship with Corinth. Paul wrote this for transformation. And God's Spirit is here with us this morning as a church for that very purpose. So as we come to study this passage now, I hope that transformation is our expectation I hope we've gathered here this morning because we want and we know how much we need God to grab hold of our lives and propel us forward to be more like Jesus. I hope that every one of us believes that this Bible passage might actually turn our world upside down today. I hope we believe that by bringing us to Corinth, God might be about to lift the boat of our lives out of whatever ocean we're sailing in right now and drag it across the isthmus to somewhere very different. So let's pray and ask God to meet us here now as we listen and engage with him. Heavenly Father, we're conscious that uh, we are dependent on you to speak to us and encourage us. Lord, you have given us your word so that we might know you, so that we might see ourselves clearly, and so that we might gain that transformation that we so desperately need. And so we come to you this morning as a church asking that you would work among us. You see each of the needs and circumstances with which we've come. And we want to be open for business this morning. We don't want just to come to church because it's a thing that we do on Sundays. We want to come acknowledging the fact that we, we really want to make progress in this Christian life. And sometimes we don't know how to do it. And so we pray that your word would teach us. We pray that we might be teachable and that you would do great things in us through what we hear now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so is everybody ready? Good. Silence, I interpret as content, so let's take it from there. So the first thing I want us to notice this morning is that this prayer comes out of a particular context. Paul, as we've already seen, has a lot to say about comfort and compassion, but before we ever get there, the thing that's driving him, the place where this prayer is coming from, is suffering. So let's get that up here as our first kind of heading. 
yeah, from suffering to prayer. But that requires a little bit of thought from us, I think. In fact, excuse me, but, but did I hear that right? Paul prays this wonderful prayer of thankfulness, and his theme is compassion and comfort, and yet the motivating factor is suffering. Really? Because what in the world has prayer got to do with suffering? Surely prayer is the last thing we feel like doing when we suffer. In fact, isn't suffering an indication that prayer doesn't work? Doesn't it show us that God has taken his eye off the ball? Or that the situations we're facing are ones that he doesn't care about or that he just isn't able to help us with? There are good, these are good questions and we need to face them if we're going to get to grips with what this passage might want to do inside us. But our problem is that we have a very strong presupposition that blessing from God involves not suffering, right? Again, let's, let's just name that as the elephant in the room here. Blessing equals not suffering. And the problem with that whole idea, the reason why it's such a, a sticky idea, is that it has a grain of truth in it, right? God is a good God. God made a good world. And so bad things are not what he wants for us at the most fundamental level. It's right for us to feel how wrong sickness and disappointment and broken relationships are. The Bible doesn't ask us just to shrug them off like Buddhism does, dismissing physical life itself as an evil, or like atheism does, dismissing good things and bad things alike as equally meaningless. No, Christianity wants us to see suffering for what it is. It's horrible. It's gut-wrenching. It's isolating. It's out of place. But that doesn't mean that blessing from God involves not suffering, does it? If every single thing we have, if every single breath we draw is a gift from God, if every opportunity, every relationship, every faculty we possess, sight, hearing, mental sharpness, physical strength, if all of this is a gift from God, we are abundantly blessed. And if one of these things, or maybe even many of them, are reduced or withdrawn, horrible though that may be, we're still blessed, are we not? We may be blessed less, but does that mean that we're blessed less than we deserve? Does it mean we have nothing to thank God for if we find ourselves with less than we've grown used to? It's hard for us to hear that, isn't it? But it's true. And it's liberating, and I'm sure many of us have grasped it in our own experience. When I was 24 years old, a fairly recent graduate working as a designer in the job I'd always dreamed of, my lungs collapsed one day while I was sitting at my desk. I was rushed to hospital, it was all pretty terrifying, and when they eventually discharged me, my body just didn't recover. I got weaker and weaker. By the time six months had passed, I was living with my parents, unable to work, unable to walk, unable to climb the stairs, unable to cut my own food. I didn't get back to London for two and a half years. I wasn't fully well till I was 35. But this truth saved me, that blessing does not equal not suffering. So let's just get rid of that. What we have now is not a good measure of what we deserve. What we have now is more than we deserve. And if we ever find ourselves in situations where we have less than we've grown used to, perhaps dramatically less, it will still be more than we deserve. The loss may be something to be sad about. It may be something to mourn over. Evil is still evil for us as Christians. But suffering doesn't mean we have no reason to live. It doesn't mean we have nothing to contribute. 
It doesn't mean we've been robbed of the privilege of giving thanks. And that's how Paul gets from suffering to prayer. Look down with me at the paragraph that immediately follows the one that we had read for us, starting there in verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, says Paul, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Do you see the source of his comfort there? Naming God as the author and the determiner of what it looks like to be blessed. Paul may be referring here to the events that brought his ministry in Ephesus to an end. After those three years of gospel service there, preaching, teaching, training up pastors and church planters who went on to affect the whole of the province of Asia Minor, Paul and his friends were thrown out of the city. There was a riot. The craftsmen who made images of the local goddess Artemis felt threatened by the growth of Christianity and they dragged Paul into a theatre baying for his blood. Can you imagine what that was like? And can you imagine after the dust settled, the disappointment? Can you imagine all the good that Paul and co. might have done in that city if they'd been allowed to stay? And yet it's out of that context that he can write the words that we read. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So the first place where God might be seeking to work transformation in some of our lives here this morning is right here. As Christians, we don't need to see sufferings as disqualifiers for prayer. We don't have to believe that our hurts and our brokenness are evidence of God's unconcern and unwillingness to help us. No, as Christians, we can move from suffering to prayer, from suffering indeed to praise, because we know that everything we have comes from God in the first place and that none of it was ever deserved and that in our circumstances, just like Paul's, God is working through our hardships to bring about great good. So that's the first part of Paul's logic ironed flat here. Suffering isn't a roadblock to prayer. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We can absolutely go from suffering to prayer. It's a major route. It's a well-marked highway in the Christian life. But why should we want to? That's actually a good question. And it's the next part of the passage which helps us get our heads around that. You see, just as we can and we should go quite naturally from suffering to prayer, we can also expect to go on from prayer to comfort. See that up there. Turn back with me to verses three to five of our passage a minute. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. One way we can answer the question I just posed, why should we even want to pray when we suffer, is to camp on the hope that if we pray for deliverance from our sorrows, God will hear and act and our health and our broken relationships will be restored and we will be returned somehow to the place of happiness and contentment where we began. And that's all good at one level, isn't it? 
as we saw at the start, we don't have to con ourselves that hurtful situations don't hurt and that we're somehow immune when the things that we've invested our time and love and creativity in are wiped out for no reason. That's just stoicism, but it's not Christianity. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to cry when things go wrong, and it's okay to pray for their restoration. We know, don't we, that God is very heavily invested in restoration. Restoration is his plan for the whole world in the end. But while we wait for that, none of us actually knows whether in the specific circumstances of our suffering, restoration is the path that he has marked out for us. And if the prospect of restoration is the only thing that gets us praying, that perhaps tells us we still need the transformation we saw back in Paul's life at the start. It's easy to focus on restoration as the only goal of my prayers, isn't it, if I believe deep down that God owes me the good things that I enjoyed before the wheels came off. But that's not the path that Paul is walking here. Did you notice the surprising twist in his logic there in verse 5? Paul prays in suffering, not because he's desperate to get out of it, but because he knows suffering has a hidden power to it. That suffering can do something unexpected in us. It can bring us to a place that we find oh so hard to get to when life is all plain sailing. In verse 5, Paul tells us he has found suffering to be a place where he shares abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. And the net result of that is that his comfort abounds through Christ. Paul is not talking about God stepping in and making all the wrong things right here. Paul is talking about comfort amid the pain, consolation even in his reduced state, with his ministry torn apart, with his reputation in tatters, with his relationships broken, with opportunities for usefulness smashed beyond repair. And what is this comfort, this consolation that he's found? The answer is nearness to Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, communion with Jesus. And when it comes right down to that, down to it, isn't that what all of us most need? You see, I hope it's just me, but I fear all of us often find ourselves living kind of adjacent to Jesus. Our lives get to running along parallel tracks with his, like trains heading in the same direction but on separate rails. It's still Christianity, but there's a remoteness to it, isn't there? We feel like we're admiring Jesus from a distance. We're trying to keep pace with him, trying to keep in step with his spirit, to travel in his direction, but there's a lack of intimacy. There's a lack of connection. I, I, I visualise that. I'm terribly visually minded, I'm afraid, so you're all going to suffer for that this morning. But I visualise that like two ropes running side by side, and we'll, um, we'll label one of them here. Um, Jesus, and we'll label this one us and our lives are running along like this in the same direction but somewhat removed from one another but do you see what Paul thinks happens when we bring our sufferings to God in prayer Paul thinks that suffering forces these two chords together in suffering the the chord of our life experience is pinched sometimes terribly painfully but you see it's pinched up against the cord of Jesus's life experience so that Paul can say he is sharing in the sufferings of Christ so again just to follow that analogy through his advice 
That's what I'm talking about. When we suffer, our lives and Jesus' life run along the same tracks for a time. And that intimacy that in our best moments we crave more than any earthly thing is there for the taking. As our sufferings draw us close to him, we can see at least a glimpse of what he went through for us and we can begin to appreciate it. Do we know physical pain today? Have we watched as things that we've treasured in life have been wiped out in an instant? Have we felt the hot sting of misunderstanding or misrepresentation or betrayal? Do we know the pain of broken friendships, the pain of losing loved ones, the pain of being alone? Jesus himself experienced these sorrows and he knew them on our behalf. If we would really know and grasp the gospel for ourselves, if we would really know what it is that our sin deserves, if we would really know the depth of his love for us in bearing it all in our place, communion with Jesus in these experiences is the place we're going to find it. As suffering strips us of the things we value most in life, our minds and hearts are focused on the things that captured Jesus' mind when he was stripped and beaten and killed. Suffering sets our sights on rising with him when this life is done. It sets our sights on living with him in the new heavens and the new earth that he's promised. Suffering allows us to count our qualifications and possessions here as rubbish that we might gain Christ and be found in him now and in the future. And we can also find Christ's compassion in our sufferings, can't we? Because if Christ walked this path ahead of us, he knows what it feels like. We may feel completely alone in our suffering, and it may even be our fault. But the amazing good news of Christianity is that we are not alone. In the very place where we most desperately need a friend, and in the very place where sometimes even the best friends cannot come, Jesus can. There's no sorrow where he can't meet us. There's no wretchedness that he can't relate to. On the cross, he took our sins so deeply into himself, he can even relate to our guilt. So this is the second area where God might be wanting to work a transformation in our lives today. You may have come to church this morning feeling that sorrow or pain or shame excludes you from the closeness to Christ that you used to have or that you long to have. Friend, that's not the ocean God wants you to sail back out onto when you leave this room. God is telling you that your brokenness is not a disqualifier from relationship with him. It's a qualifier. It's the only qualifier. It's the very place where you can meet him. Suffering pinches our lives and the life of Christ together into intimate fellowship. And that fellowship is yours if you will just go home today and pray for it and appropriate it for yourself. It's not a way out of suffering, but a way out of suffering isn't actually the thing we most badly need. The thing we most badly need is nearness to and surrender to the God who made us. And in a broken world, suffering is one of the main places where that can happen. So it's strange. But as I look back at my years of illness, I realise more and more that it's the time I miss the very most. Not because of some dramatic epiphany that made everything okay, but because with hindsight, I can see it was the time when simple communion with God was the greatest reality in my life and that that above all else is what my life is for. Suffering isn't good in itself, but God can work great good through it. 
We have to make the most of it, not wish it away. And that brings Paul to the last item in this chain that leads from uh, suffering forward. You see, Paul isn't content to rest on his discovery that suffering leads to prayer and prayer leads to comfort. Twice in this passage, we see that his own comfort leads on to something greater. And that as the sufferings of Christ abound in him, Paul's own comfort has potential to abound. We see it first at the end of verse 4, where the realisation that God is comforting him in his sorrows leads Paul on immediately to a consequence. God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And then the same thing comes back in verse 6. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. So do you see the logic here? Paul thinks that far from reducing his usefulness and threatening his effectiveness, his sufferings have given him the chance to be even more effective because the comfort that he has derived from them by God's grace has a dramatic, explosive potential for good. The comfort that he's experienced by being drawn into close fellowship with Christ is impacting other believers in an extraordinary way. Not only comforting them, but generating a doggedness in them, a steadfastness in their lives, which is enabling them to walk tall in a hostile world and proclaim the gospel more effectively than Paul could have ever done it on his own. Suffering leads to prayer, and prayer leads to comfort, and comfort leads to fruitfulness. Now, the trajectory that Paul is sketching out here, of course, shouldn't surprise us if we know our Bibles well. This is the pattern of God's dealings with humanity since the first chapter of Genesis. There we read about God's original blessing of the world. He acts as maker, ruler, organiser, multiplier, namer, spinning the universe into being in one sustained act of breathtaking creativity. And then he blesses us, saying, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. You yourself be Makers, rulers, organisers, multipliers, namers. God himself, supremely blessed, takes his blessings and shares them with others. And his plan for us is that we'll be just like him. That our blessings won't be ends in themselves, but means to bless our fellow men and women and the world in which we live. And that's exactly what Paul experiences here. The comfort he has known in his sufferings is not designed to be sat on and hoarded. It's a blessing endowed with a kind of primal outward energy to bless others. And the others he has in mind here especially are the Corinthians. You see, Paul knows that they've been watching on as his sufferings in Ephesus have unfolded. There may not have been any mobile phones in those days, but the world Paul lived in was seriously well connected. The Christians in Corinth heard it first maybe from the next merchant boat to come into port. Big hoo-ha in Ephesus this week, I heard. Full-scale riot. In fact, don't you know this guy? Paul calls himself an apostle. Wasn't he here a few years ago? Yeah, anyway, it all blew up. No idea what happened to him. Can you imagine the shockwave? The fear that the same thing might happen in their city? Then a few days later, perhaps, something different came into port. This time, a member of the Corinthian church coming back after a trip to see relatives in Miletus. He didn't see Paul, apparently, but he did see Paul's travelling companion, Aristarchus. The church there was all in a mess. 
but Paul survived, and all of them are feeling strangely brave. Had not Jesus walked this path ahead of them? And though they never imagined themselves facing disgrace for the sake of his name and standing firm for him, what is happening? God is enabling them. And then a few weeks after that, the letter we have in our hands arrives, and you begin to sense the reaction. Christ is with us in our sufferings, brothers. If he helped Paul and the guys in Ephesus, he can help us too. We need not fear. By all accounts, they found God's promises reliable, so let's rely on them. Let's be brave. Christ is near to all of his people. And so faithfulness in one place became the catalyst for faithfulness in several other places. And the comfort of Christ's nearness in one set of sufferings became the catalyst for experiencing Christ's nearness in hundreds of others. I hope that in some small way, just by sharing my own experience of Christ's nearness in suffering, some of you will be emboldened to reach out and appropriate that same comfort. But more importantly, as we all chat together as a church in our home groups, in our connect group, I hope that each of us can be a catalyst for encouragement and comfort in the lives of others. In a depressing world that screams at us the good things that we have are ours and we deserve them and we should cling to them like grim death, God's gospel gently replies that we have been blessed so that we can bless others. And the only thing we need to participate in that blessing is a willingness to acknowledge our brokenness that draws us into the comforting embrace of Christ. I don't know about you, but I've always been kind of struck and intimidated by the parable of the soils. The farmer goes out sowing and the seed that falls on good soil springs up and produces a crop 10, 50 or 100 times what was sown. And I just ask, how does it do that? The implication is that each of us has to become Billy Graham or something, isn't it? Winning hundreds of people for Christ if our faith is really the the real deal. But this passage has something to say about that, doesn't it? Because although fruitfulness through proclaiming the gospel is a great thing and we should be praying for opportunities to share what we know of Christ with others, that's not the only way for blessing to pour out from our lives with eternal consequences. Paul is describing fruitfulness right here, isn't he? And the only thing required to emulate it is a willingness to draw near to Christ as we suffer. So do we long to know God? Do we long for nearness to him? Do we long for certainty that we are his and he is ours? Do we long to sense his power and compassion propelling us through each hour? Do we long for comfort, for consolation, but encouragement that it isn't based on how well we're feeling or how well our latest plan is working out? Do we long for usefulness, for fruitfulness? This is what our Bibles want us to grasp as we go home this morning. If we're suffering, let's ask God to meet us right there. Let's ask him not just to bring that suffering to an end in due time, but for, for communion with Christ as we walk through it. Let's not ask him for the dramatic, quick fix version of comfort, but for the abiding comfort of knowing more truly what he endured on our behalf, for eyes that look up to our future with him in heaven, and for the realization that he understands our situation and cares about it more deeply than we will ever know. Because God wants us to go home changed today with different prayers to pray and to launch out into the next week with hearts that are near to him. How? How? We'll find it in the most surprising place. We'll find it where we're weakest and most in need. 
because suffering leads to prayer, and prayer leads to comfort, and comfort leads to fruitfulness. Let's pray. We want to thank you, God, for this amazing passage from the Bible, which just runs at 90 degrees the way that we have all been trained to think and feel. And I pray that you would please give us eyes to see that the way we've trained to think and feel isn't helping anyone that much. And we pray that you will enable us right where we are with each of the needs that each one of us brings to meet you there, not to believe that there's some kind of amazing lesson that we have to learn or some kind of amazing program of growth we have to go through before we can reach the place of usefulness and intimacy with you. But just to say, look, you, you came to us. You, you endured these things that we ourselves endure yourself. And that there's proximity to Christ for us if we will only pray. In Jesus' name, amen.